Good morning, everybody. Hey, good to see you. Welcome back. Uh, happy Easter, everyone. If I didn't get to see you on Sunday um, as we celebrated the resurrection, it's um, the the week of Easter. Some people ask me how I how I've done since then. I was like, well, it was it was exhausting and energizing all at the same time on Sunday, and I slept really well on Sunday night. I have to say, yeah. It becomes a pretty busy week and busy time of year, and um, but also so so blessed. And we were um, this was the first time in four years that we had the sanctuary filled with people. So what a what a joy! That was really great. So we're uh, digging into Mark today. We um, we're in chapter thirteen. So you have a handout if you are joining us online today. So glad you're here too, even if you are not in person, but we count you as here anyway, and we can chime in on the discussion as we go along. We have the, I have the chat up on both Facebook and our website, so you can ask questions along the way. And there may be lots of questions today because chapter 13 is one of those challenging ones. I even put in the chat online. Um, buckle up <laughs> because it's a difficult chapter. So we'll, we'll do the best we can. Uh, we're scheduled to do the entire chapter today. So let's dig in, shall we? I'm going to pray and then we'll read through the entire chapter and then you can ask questions and we'll go from there. Okay. Good morning, Lord. Thank you so very much for this Easter season. And, and now you're bringing uh, such warmth to our weather too. And um, the warmest day of our year so far, just thrilled, and it's, it's, a, it's a, joyous, a joyous season. Uh, we also recognize that there are those who are hurting and suffering, and um, in the midst of that, you give such hope as uh, we have the promise of the resurrection. Just as Jesus rose, we too will rise, and we just thank you so very much for that hope and assurance that at the last day, we will rise and see with our very own eyes. Um, so God, just whatever's going on in our world, um, give us that, that assurance. We pray your Holy Spirit would be upon us during our time this morning as we dig into your word in Mark 13, that uh, your spirit would open our minds to understand, our hearts to believe. Um, just Lord, in the difficult words that are here, help us to sort through and um, and, and make sense of this as we only can when your Holy Spirit is, is guiding us. So um, we put ourselves, our lives, our minds, our spirits into your hands, and um, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm going to just read through all of chapter 13 in Mark, and, um, and then we'll, we'll go from there, see where the conversation takes us today. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign that they are about to be fulfilled? Jesus said to them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines, these are the beginning of birth pains. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must be first preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, his and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me, 
but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down or enter the or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and miracles to deceive the elect, if that were possible. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. But in those days following that distress, the sun will be darkened, the moon will, be, will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, Men will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with, with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its, figs, as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is, is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when the, that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts it his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Yes. Okay, so let me just open it up. You know, look at your handout here, the dominant theme of, 13, of Mark 13. After listening to the whole chapter, what would you say, what concepts, what themes are repeated and prominent? What is most prominent in this whole chapter as I just read it? Marge? Destruction. Um, and you said destruction at the second coming. We're going to talk about that, actually, because I'm going to push back on that last part of your statement. Um, and I'm going to say it's not at the second. Question, uh, because I'm going to say this whole chapter is not about the second coming. What? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, destruction. Okay. That's a common theme that's repeated throughout. Yep. Beware. Beware. Yes. Be prepared. Okay, so yeah, um, there's there's destruction coming, lots of it. Um, there's be watchful, be ready, and how you live in faith, right until that time Jesus comes back, which is all true. I mean, all the th that kind of is the the whole theme of this chapter. In particular, look at how many times Jesus says, "Watch, be on guard, uh, be alert." I'm going to point out several of them uh, just real quick in this chapter. Look at verse 5. Watch out that no one deceives you. Number 9, or verse 9, you must be on your guard. Um, verse 14 says, let the reader understand. It's you know, sort of like, hey, you know, watch, watch, watch what's going on here. 23, so be on your guard. Uh, verse 33, be on guard, be alert. Verse 35, keep watch. Verse 37, watch. <laughs> How many times is that? Seven, eight times that Jesus in the span of this chapter is saying, watch out. Be on your guard. Look out. Like, it's, it's sort of like, hey, pay attention. 
wake up, you know, it's sort of that. <laughs> wake up, people. Because, um, and, and I think this is important, um, as, you, as you look through this chapter, he's saying there will be false Christs, false prophets. There will be people who come in my name but really are not coming in my name. There will be a lot of deception. And so don't be, don't be fooled. That's, that's, that's why you have to be on your guard and be ready. Um, be alert. Um, anything else on that question? What's repeated? What's major theme? Now, what about this thing I just said? This whole chapter is not talking about the second coming, the end times. Well, wait a second. It sure sounds like it. Like the moon will be darkened. The moon will not give its, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies shaken. What is that about? Yeah. What? Well, yeah. So, and the son of man coming in the clouds, you know, wars and rumors of wars. And what, what, there's a lot going on. It sounds like end times to me. So, but it's not. Are you saying that, Sue, just because I said so? Or, okay, yes. <laughs> I, well, I really appreciate you put so much trust and faith in me. However, should you put so much faith in me? Am I just leading you astray? <laughs> you should always ask this, by the way. Um, don't just let, oh, well, the pastor says so, so that must be right. Um, no, you should always, by digging into the scripture yourself, know whether I'm speaking the truth or if, if you ever have a pastor who says why are you questioning my authority Ooh, you know no you should always find yeah question um and my i had someone i gave a sermon one time in my last church and and she came up to me afterwards and she said pastor i don't, I don't know you said something in that um and so we went we dug into the bible and she said oh well, i didn't know that was there <laughs> Thanks for coming with this challenge, right? But um, I was able to prove that I was right. <laughs> well, I, no, I'm just kidding. I mean, at least, you know, just kind of um, just dig into the scripture is kind of the point. Um, but why am I saying that this is not, that, not about the end times? This is not, well, I mean, okay, we are in the end times. So we have been since Jesus rose from the dead. So that, that's not appropriate to say we're not in the end times. But I'm saying we're not, this is not talking about, the last day, end of the world, judgment day, that kind of thing. Okay, that, that's what I'm saying right here. Yeah, Ken? Yeah, in this section, yes. So Matthew 24 and Luke um, 21. Are, they're, they're not word for word, but yes, very similar. And and all three, I would say, are, uh, I'm going to temper this a little bit, because I think Mar uh, Matthew, the way he presents what Jesus says, is he presents not the end times, and then does present the end times. But Mark, I don't think, ever gets to the last day, judgment day kind of thing. Um yeah, March. I was thinking that this is all about preparation, and we can look at the story of the Samaritan and friendly. Yeah, so you're thinking all this is about preparation, preparation. and we've been doing that since Jesus. And yeah. Yep. 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 Yeah, there's there always yep. There are always going to be people that we have to spread the word to. Yeah. Um, so this, I was remind, reminded of this again today, actually. So I, I opened up my email, and every once in a while, I just happen to look at my, you know, sort of to the side of my email, and I see that I have like 35 emails in my junk folder. And it's like, okay, what's in my junk folder? Make sure that things that are there are supposed to be there and not something I should actually. So I'm going along, and I have three emails from somebody about, a new newsletter that I should subscribe to that is all about biblical prophecy at end times. I'm like, okay. You know, so another, you know, another one. Um, just reminded of the fact that there's a lot of, there, there are a lot of people in our day 
who are who are hungry to know like what's going to happen at the end and are are we in the time that is you know sort of the last season before Jesus comes again well well we're not going to know i mean it's like the like the thief who comes in the night or the owner of that the house that comes back as mark or as Jesus says this in mark 13 you know you don't know if it's going to be their night uh you can sort of watch for the signs but you're just you're never going to know um but to Marge's point, you, you look at the book of Revelation, you look at the book of Daniel in the Old Testament or Ezekiel or a place like this in Mark 13. And it seems to be talking about the very, very end and, and all of the, the, the events that lead up to the second coming of Jesus. And um, I actually don't think that all those things are written with the intent of giving us a play-by-play of Jesus' second coming, including the book of Revelation. There are a lot of people who read the book of Revelation as a play-by-play of what's going to happen in the seven to ten years before the second coming of Jesus. They say, see, right there, that's what's going on right now in Russia. That's what's going on right now in the Middle East. And that stuff has been happening Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, and everything else. That's been happening since before Jesus. It was happening at the time of Jesus. It's been happening since Jesus. And it will continue to happen until the second coming. So what I always like to say about Revelation is, Revelation is all about what has happened, what is happening, and what will happen. All of that is described in Revelation. Very symbolic language. All this, what's talking about, what Jesus is talking about in Mark 13 is not, and maybe there's a little hint of it, but primarily not about the second coming. Now, let me tell you why I say that. Um, there are, let, let's go all the way through verse 23 for now. Okay, just just through verse 23. And let me just point out a few things that make me say at least this section, at least verses 1 through 23, are not about the second coming of Jesus. Okay. Um, at the second coming of Jesus, what is going to happen? Instantaneous judgment on all the world. Jesus comes back you are not going to miss it. Okay? When he comes back, you're just like, you know, you wake up one day and you're like, did I miss it? No, you're not going. Paul, actually, Paul talks about this in uh, 2 Thessalonians. People are thinking, well, the saint coming is coming. We missed it. And Paul's like, you haven't missed it. Okay, it's... uh, Jesus, when Jesus comes, it is going to be so obvious that every eye will see, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ. You're not going to miss it. So why does it say, well, be on your guard because there will be those who will hand you over to councils and kings. Be on your guard because there will be those who come in my name and they'll, say, they'll claim to be me, but it's not me. Why would he have to warn people about, oh, let's just pray that you're not pregnant or nursing in those days because it's going to be really difficult um, and flee to the mountains because um, things are going to get really hard. Like, why does he have to say stuff like that? If it's the last day, what's going to happen is Jesus comes back, instantaneous judgment, the dead are raised, and he will restore all things the way they were meant to be Almost in an instant. There's not sort of this, um, okay, he's coming back and we're going to suffer for a while um, while he's while he's coming back, right? So maybe in a season leading up to the time Jesus comes back, there'll be suffering. But isn't there suffering now? We're suffering big time as it is. And it's difficult for, um, okay, um, what else? 
brother will betray brother to death and the father his child and children rebel against their parents and all all this kind of stuff he's saying all these things are where's where's this um verse eight earthquakes in various places famines these are the what beginning the beginning of earth pains a lot of other stuff a lot of other stuff has to happen okay this is just the beginning um you know if, if this is about jesus coming back then why do you have to worry about what you have to say before kings and rulers and things like that okay does this make sense in, in matthew it's even more obvious because jesus actually says um things like uh you know when, when, when you see the signs of this coming uh Flee the mountains. Um, don't look back. Uh, it, it'll be better for you in those days. Like people will try to hide, you know, under rocks and in the mountain crevices and things like that. And like, how's it, how are you going to hide from Jesus when he comes back? So, so it's not that. Okay. Um, so what, what am I saying? Karen, you had a question or comment? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so what, what, what exactly, when Jesus says, watch out, be on your guard, be alert, and those kinds of things, what am I exactly, what exactly am I looking for that I don't follow the false prophets and those who deceive and draw people away and that kind of thing? Um, I think part of it is, um, people will get all kinds of uh, worked up thinking this is the end and so i'm going to give up on all the work there is to do the church is called to do in loving people because i'm like well i'm just i'm preparing for the end so let's just uh let's cut everything else out let's uh, you know so we lose sight of what's important for the church to do in the midst of, because we get sort of this end time excitement um, and stop preaching the gospel. Isn't it going to be hard? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And that's why Jesus actually says, be on your guard, because, and why he says it so many times, because it's going to be difficult, because there will be those who sound, I mean, it sounds like you're, you know, speaking in biblical terms, and it sounds like you're, that, that's, that's why you need to know the scriptures, right? To know what, what does Jesus teach? Because um, it, um, there will be false Christs and false prophets, for sure. Yeah, Helen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Peter couldn't even stay awake for one hour in the garden, so you know it's going to be difficult. That's right. Yeah, wait and watch with me for one hour. The pleading, and and they had seen Jesus face to face and seen his miracles and everything else, and still, right, uh, still couldn't keep watch. So, how, how much more difficult is it going to be for us who have the removal of two thousand years since then? We we have the Word of God and, and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, hoping that. Yes. Yes. Um, we definitely have something to look forward to, and it will end eventually. Absolutely true. Um, so let me, let me say this. Um, looking at verses 1 through 23 still, let me make this assertion, because I've said that it is not about the second coming of Jesus, but now let me make an assertion about what I believe it is. So Jesus, in chapters 11 and 12, has been 
at the temple. Right? In chapter 11, he came into Jerusalem to the praise of the people. And then there's this whole thing with the fig tree. Remember a few weeks ago when I was with you last, we talked about this sandwich between the fig tree and the fig tree. And in between, he's talking about the temple. And we said all this is about the fact that the temple is now obsolete. So in chapters 11 and 12, he's had this opposition from the religious leaders who are all about the temple. And Jesus is saying that the temple is obsolete. And now, look at the very beginning of chapter 13. As he was leaving the temple, so Jesus is leaving the temple. And let me make this assertion too. When Jesus leaves the temple, God leaves the temple. Right? Oh, yeah. You know, where's God's home on earth? The temple, the Holy of Holies. This is throne on earth. This is inside the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus left, in fact, um, you could cross-reference this to Matthew 23, verse, um, it's very, almost very end of chapter, I can't remember which verse number, like 23, 38 maybe, something like that. Ooh, bam! 38. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so um, Jesus is saying, oh, I long, long to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Then verse 38, Jesus says, look, your house is left to you desolate. Now, Mark doesn't quote Jesus as saying that, but Matthew does. Your house is left to you desolate. And then verse 1 of the next chapter says, Jesus left the temple. When Jesus walks away from the temple, he walks away from it for the last time. Yes. Well, yeah, I mean, so our, then the church becomes the embodiment of God on earth, right? The temple of the Holy Spirit. But in the meantime... So think about historically, and I give you um, historical context here on the front of your handout. There was the temple that Solomon had built back in the 10th century B.C. Okay, it's 900s B.C. Solomon built the temple. That temple stood up until 586 B.C. Now that temple had been the house of God. The people of Israel rebelled and God brought against Israel or against Judah's Israel and Judah were separated by that time, but God brought the Babylonians against them and completely leveled the city of Jerusalem, including the temple that Solomon had built. Then a second temple was built. That was completed and dedicated in 516 B.C. That was the home, right, in Jerusalem, the home of the Lord, the throne of, of God. Um, around 20 B.C., you can see on the timeline there, Herod the Great had completed a whole renovation of the temple that had been standing for 500 years. That's it's a long time. There are no buildings in the United States that have been in existence this long, right? Maybe 250, that's it. <laughs> but the 500 years, so the big renovation that took place, the, the temple was all in its glory. But then, uh, so there's this temple that stood in Jerusalem. Then Jesus shows up. And John tells us, John chapter 1, that, uh, oh, shh. <laughs> um, John tells us that, Jesus, that the Word of God came and dwelt among us. When he dwelt among us, he, the word he uses is a technical term, he tabernacled among us, like the tabernacle that preceded the temple. That Jesus was the embodiment of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit was uh, in, in bodily form right, in Jesus Christ. Um, on earth. 
God in the flesh. And then he walks out of the temple, and that temple then is now obsolete and desolate, and it can be destroyed. There's no need for it anymore. No need for the sacrifices because Jesus was the once for all ultimate sacrifice for all sins of the whole world. No sacrifices need to be brought to the temple anymore. So the temple is obsolete. And it is going to be completely leveled. Jesus says, do you see all these, these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. They will all, every one of them, thrown down. And that's what happened in 70 A.D. The Romans, uh, the result of a rebellion by the Jews that went for two or three years leading up to this, uh, the Romans came in with supreme force, besieged the city of Jerusalem, and the Christians who were there who knew the words of Jesus and this warning in Mark 13 and Matthew 24 and uh, Luke 21, they knew the words of Jesus. And what did they do? They left Jerusalem. They fled away from Jerusalem. In fact, um, historically, we know that the Christians left and went across the Jordan River over to Jordan and the mountains on the other, what's known as the Transjordan. So on the other side of the Jordan River from, from Jerusalem, they fled there while the Romans destroyed the city, including the temple. And there's a Jewish historian, his name is Josephus, who wrote in the first century, so around the time of Jesus and Paul. And he describes that in great detail, the, the siege that, uh, the Romans surrounded the city, did not let people come and go, supplies, so the people were starving, uh, desperate for clean water and food. And um, eventually the Romans just came in, and, and he describes the destruction of the temple, that there was not a remnant of the temple left. Just leveled. And the words of Jesus came true. Not one stone here will be left on another. So what I believe is what Mark is talking about in uh, Jesus, what Jesus is talking about in Mark 13 is the coming of Jesus in judgment upon the temple and the destruction of the temple. Now, is Jesus visible when he came in that judgment? No, people didn't see him with, with their eyes, but he came in this, you know, as the Son of Man comes with the clouds, with great power and glory. Um, and then he says, verse 30, I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have been accomplished. That happened within the generation that was standing there at the time of Jesus. Forty years later, that temple was gone. That's what all this is talking about. And giving a warning to his disciples ahead of time that there are going to be tough times. And when people say, oh, here, here's the Christ, there's the Christ, uh, don't believe it. Okay? You think the end is coming? Well, that's not the end yet. This is just the beginning. So the destruction of the temple is just the beginning of birth pains. It's the beginning of the end times period that we're living in right now. So a lot of this stuff happened historically. The, the apostles were led before kings and councils and had to give testimony about Jesus. Yes, sir. Okay, question. Since the Jews came back in 1947, yeah, 1948, yep. They have not attempted to rebuild the temple. That is correct. Um, so, I, this is this is going to be probably really controversial. 
I think there's more interest from certain Christian groups in rebuilding the temple than there is among the Jews. The, those who call themselves Jews now um, are very different than Old Testament Jews. I mean, the, the way they interpret Scripture, um, their understanding of Messiah, you know, a lot of times we think, well, the Jews are still waiting for their Messiah. No, the way they read the Messianic prophecies of the Old Testament now is more like the nation of Israel is the Messiah. There's not like one Messianic person who's coming. Like we believe Jesus came as Messiah. No, they, they interpret that more like the nation is, uh, is Messiah. So when you read Isaiah 53, you know, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The, the um, punishment that brought us peace was upon him. You think, well, that's a clear, you know, clear prediction of Jesus who was crucified. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And, and the Jewish people say, oh, no, that's not talking about a person. That's talking about the nation. Like when he says he will be crushed, that, that's, that's Israel as a whole. So they just read it very differently now. Um, I think there, and, and so when you get to the sacrifices and temple and all that, they don't believe they need a sacrifice or a temple anymore. Otherwise, they would be doing sacrifices even without a temple, build a tabernacle or something. Or they would have, you know, having possession of the Temple Mount, they would have built that a long time ago. But they haven't. They don't, they don't feel they need to. There are Christian groups that are more interested in rebuilding the temple because they think that that will be the sign of the end. And I think that's just a, a fundamental misreading of the scriptures. We have no need for the temple to be rebuilt. Because Jesus is the temple, and now the body of Christ, the church, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So there's, yeah, no need for that. So yes, yeah, yes. So yes, as Christians, we believe that our bodies are the temp are a temple. Yes, but generally, we speak of the Holy Spirit being um, embodied in the church as a whole, not just individuals, and not primarily as individuals, but as a collective body. Correct. Individuals collectively are the church. It's our life. I get you're anxious. You're like, yes. I got something to say. Go ahead. The Romans destroyed. Yep. What is on the Temple Mount now? Yeah. Right now, right now you can go to the Temple Mount, and I've been there a few times. You can walk up on the Temple Mount, and there is a mosque. It's called the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and there is the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim shrine. It's like the third most holy place on earth for the Muslims. Uh, Dome of the Rock is built on that. So look that up and like see a picture of it if you've never seen this before. Uh, it's got white and blue tile that is um, covering all the outside uh, and then a gold dome on top. It's called the Dome of the Rock. It's supposed to be where Isaac, uh, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac. Yeah. Oh, yeah, where Muhammad actually was, yeah, whisked up to heaven. Yeah. Yeah, supposedly. So, yes. So, um, all that to say that the claim of um, Mark 13, I believe, is Jesus talking about the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. All this will be thrown down. Okay. And then all the things that lead up to that is what he's talking about in all the rest of this chapter. And be on your guard because, well, number one, it'll be hard, difficult times. There will be persecution that's happening. And uh, you, you might want to get out of the city. I mean, he doesn't say it in those terms, but you might want to get out of the city because this can be really hard. And um, now what about this? The pushback on what I've just told you, that this is talking about 70 AD. Well, what about statements like this? 
Uh, pray that this will not take place in winter because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never be equaled again. What's that about? Um, I, I forgot to actually give you the biblical references to this, but this this is actually a, a an Old Testament style statement that is made several times in the Old Testament that is an intentionally hyperbolic statement. It's an exaggerated statement. Say, it's never been this bad before and it'll never be this bad again. Is a way of saying, it's going to be really, really bad. It's an idiom, right? It's, it's an, an idiomatic expression. It's a way of saying it's going to be really, really bad. This generation has never seen something so bad. Okay? It would be kind of like that. Uh, well, what about this? Verse 24. In those days the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. You'll see the Son of Man coming out of the clouds. Isn't that talking about the last day? Isn't that coming, talking about second coming? Sure sounds like it, right? Um, this also is not unprecedented, unprecedented to speak about historical events in apocalyptic language. Apocalyptic language is like this. The sun is dark, the moon stops shining, the stars fall from the sky, and everything else. I want you to turn to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. This is just one example of this in the Old Testament. Psalm 18, uh, notice the small print right between the heading of Psalm 18 and verse 1, which says, I love you, love you, O Lord, my strength. See the small print? This is a a heading or subheading that is given to the psalm in the original. It says, for the director of music, of David, the servant of the Lord, he sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So do you remember um, Saul was pursuing David to kill him because God had anointed David to be the new king. Saul is absolutely beside himself, enraged over David, jealous of David. And so he goes to pursue him and kill him. And more than once, God delivers David out of Saul's hands from Saul's army. So just look at what it says. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer, my rock, and my, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge. He is my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled the torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. And from his temple, he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. Okay, so so what is David saying? My enemies are surrounding me. It's like the cords of death are, I, there's, a, there's a snare, a trap just set for me. And it's, it's like the enemy is squeezing, squeezing in. They're right on top of me. But I cry out to the Lord, and I know that the Lord hears me from his temple in heaven. And then look at verse 7. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils. Consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He became 
He made darknesses covering his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky, and now the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstones and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemies. Great bolts of lightning routed them. The valley of the seas were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Man, this sounds like end time stuff, doesn't it? The Lord coming down and, you know, the earth melts before him and the foundations of the earth are just laid bare before him. This sounds like the end of the world, doesn't it? Now, do you think any of that was visible to David or to the enemies around him, Saul's men and all that? They didn't see lightning bolts and hail storms and breath of fire coming out of his mouth and the foundations of the earth being laid bare and the seas being split in two. They didn't see any of that. It's intentionally apocalyptic language to describe in, you know, sort of poetic and exaggerated terms the work of God to come in and snatch him, snatch David out of his enemy's hands and rescue him. He, he reached down from on high and he took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemies, from my foes who were too strong for me, right? So like right in the midst, you get this, it goes from an historical account, a little bit poetic, to whoa, into the world type language, now back to a little bit poetic historical accounting of what God did for him. See how this happens? Like this, this happens all over the Bible. Um, you say, what, what about those places where it actually says that, you know, the angel of death came through? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, th that happened too. But there are places where the, the writers of the Bible use this very, again, it's called apocalyptic language. It's end-of-the-world type language to describe historical events that, um, that are expressed in this, um, this poetic, um, artistic kind of a way. Yeah, Helen? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's a very human way of responding to it because you feel like, you know, like the cords of death are, you know, you can, when, when you're reading that in Psalm 18, you can almost feel like, oh, yeah, it's like, oh, the enemy is there. And, and, and you have this very um, heightened awareness of, you know, your heart's beaten and you're scared out of your wits and, and then somehow you're rescued from it and you go, how did that happen? <laughs> you know? And so David's describing that kind of a thing in, in this really, really amazing language. So my argument is that in then Mark 13, when Jesus is describing this, you know, in those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the, and the heavenly bodies are shaken. This is uh, this kind of apocalyptic language that he's describing the coming of Jesus is coming to the Son of Man, hidden, right? We don't actually see it with our eyes, but he comes in judgment upon Israel and upon a temple using the Romans, just like he had used the Babylonians in previous generations. Um, that's why I gave you the history of what, what happened uh, historically. And Jesus is using that kind of hy uh, hyperbolic, uh, apocalyptic language to describe the destruction, which was utterly disastrous. It's a way of heightening, it's heightening the language, heightening the, the vocabulary and everything to, to help you understand this is, this is like earth shattering, earth moving stuff. It was, uh, it was such, uh, it's such an important shift from trust in the temple to the lordship of Christ that it's, it's talked about in that kind of 
strong language. Bob, go ahead. Explain verse 10. Uh, verse 10. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, so verse 10 says, and the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And it's between verse 9 and 11. Okay, so let's just look at all those verses. Let me just read them out loud so we're on the same page. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you're saying, what's the sequence of this, right? Like, how is that the gospel is preached to all nations and then, you know, all this other stuff? Um, I think there are two things happening here. Um, number one, if you, if you track through the book of Acts, a lot of this is coming true even in the first 10, 11 chapters of the book of Acts. Where, remember they're, they're uh, Peter and John and James and the others, they're, they're preaching in the temple courts and the religious leaders keep pulling them into, um, pulling them before the, the Sanhedrin and the uh, religious leaders and tell them, stop preaching in this name. We can't do that. They throw them in jail. The angel comes along and opens the jail and they get, they're set free. And the next day they're out in the temple. Wait, wait, wait. Aren't those people you just put in jail, the same ones who were out here and they bring them? How did you get out? Well, I don't know. The angel of the Lord came along and let us out, right? And so they're preaching that uh, those kinds of things are happening already in the book of Acts. And the preaching of the gospel to all nations is already happening in the book of Acts. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, there are people from all nations on the earth who are gathered in Jerusalem, we're told, in, in Acts 2. At the day of Pentecost, there are um, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and people from Mesopotamia and it's, uh, from all over. The whole known world at that time is whoosh, gathered in Jerusalem. They're hearing the preaching of the gospel, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. And they're preaching, and then they're taking that out all over the place. And then the other, the other thing that's happening, the second piece, Bob, is that in that generation, already in the generation of the apostles, we don't have this uh, recorded in the book of Acts or elsewhere in the New Testament, but um, the church tradition has the, the other apostles besides Peter and, and John scattering all over to North Africa, over to India, to uh, Southern Europe. They're taking the gospel all over the place as they're scattered from the persecution that took place in Jerusalem in Acts um, 6, 7, 8. They're taking the gospel to all nations. It was happening already in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I, so by the way, uh, what you're saying, Bob, and let me repeat that for those who are online. So what you're, what you're saying, if, if, if you didn't have me to explain what I just did to you, you would read this verse 10 and think, well, this is really about the end times. This is about the last day because Jesus basically saying, I'm not coming back until the gospel is preached to all nations. And, and by the way, we haven't been to Botswana yet or, you know, something like that. And so, you know, there's, there's got to be someplace missing. We haven't preached the word yet. But that, um, that is in, not, just among, um, not just among lay people. This is an argument among scholars who read this and would say the same thing. So you're in good company. Absolutely. What I'm, what I'm saying is that you're not like out in left field going, well, what's wrong with me? Why would I read it that way? A lot of people read it that way. 
And what I'm saying is that um, we, sometimes we take these words like um, the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And we think, oh, all nations, that means like every nation that, you know. The people who were living in the Middle East at this time, at the time of Jesus and the people Jesus is speaking to, have little to no concept of people in Indonesia or China or North America. The nations, all nations, represents the Mediterranean world. This North Africa to uh, basically Hindu, in the Hindu Kush mountains, which is the border between, uh, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan and India and Southern Europe. That, that's the known world. That's all nations to them. So Jesus is not somehow setting up uh, a formula for, well, until you, until you preach it to every nation, you know, I, I'm not going to come. It's, it's not so much that. He's just saying that the gospel has got to be preached, okay? So be on your guard that you're not getting distracted from the mission of the gospel to do the hard work of sharing Jesus with the world by people saying, well, it's all over now, right? We're in the last day. Well, we're in the last days, plural, but not the last day. So until, I had a professor at the seminary who said, nothing is the end of the world except the end of the world. And uh, exactly, right? Until we know for sure that this is the end of the world, don't start thinking that this is the end of the world. Just keep preaching the gospel, live your life in faith, be watchful and ready, and until you see Jesus face to face, Assume that it's not the end yet. Okay, so nothing is the end of the world until the end of the world. Yeah, March. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, haven't, haven't we had many, many times where people thought that this was the end? Yes, absolutely. In fact, even in our lifetimes, the early 1970s were were prime time for biblical prophecies and end times that well it's going to happen by 1986 this is past 1986 we can all agree right we're not in some sort of twilight zone that we think it's 2023 but it's actually 1985 or something right we're past 1986 right so all the stuff that they predicted in the 1970s about 1986 well no they were wrong about that and this happened over and over and over again in the history of the New Testament period. Absolutely. Yeah. Ken? Oh, I know. Billy Graham was wrong, too. I hate to say it. You know, may he rest in peace. But, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I know. Well, I mean, there. Okay. Let me be cautious and careful. We should always be ready, right? Jesus could come back today. So we should always be ready. But we should not let, we should not just get comfortable thinking, well, we're in the last time, so what's the point? You know, Jesus come back in a few days or a few hours or a few years, and so we can just get comfortable because he's going to restore it all now. No, we should be even more urgent with the gospel the closer we think it gets. So, uh, yeah. Um, can I just end with one thing? Uh, we're getting close to the time, and I want you to look at the back of your handout. I thought this was cool. This is something that just... It never was obvious to me until I did a little research getting ready for today. And um, so there's a picture there. You can see at least part of the city of Jerusalem at the time of Jesus. That's what the picture is, the map, where you can see the temple. 
Um, to the right of the picture, you can see the Mount of Olives. If you were to see this in elevation, it would be, you know, Jerusalem and the temple here and a steep descent into the Kidron Valley and then a steep ascent into the Mount of Olives. Okay, so there's a Kidron Valley, the, the squiggly line that goes between Gethsemane and the temple there is the uh, river valley called the Kidron Valley. Um, interestingly, if you go back to the book of Ezekiel, so you can go to Ezekiel chapter 10. Um, this will also be a little bit controversial because some people read the book of Ezekiel as a end times prophecy. And I will argue that it's maybe partly end times prophecy, but not primarily. Same with the book of Daniel. People say, well, this is all talking about like revelation stuff, like wait, way into the future uh, second coming of Christ stuff. I said, well, maybe partly, but not primarily. Book of Ezekiel is talking about Ezekiel, 600 years before Jesus, is seeing, uh, predicting, right, foreseeing the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And he's, he's speaking about it in very symbolic language, the same kind of language that you get in the book of Revelation. It's, uh, it's, it's uh, like this apocalyptic stuff where there are wheels with eyes all over it. Like, what does that mean? You know? Well, anyway, let's look at the verses that are here. Ezekiel 10, 18, 19. Then the glory of the Lord departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim, which is... Uh, there, there are cherubim in a couple places, one on the Ark of the Covenant and also at the entrance to the, the temple. Okay, so he departed from over the threshold of the temple and stopped above the cherubim. While I watched, the cherubim spread their wings and rose from the ground. And as they went, the wheels went with them. They stopped at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house, the east gate of the temple. And the glory of God of Israel was above them, the cherubim. So what's happening? The glory of the Lord is leaving the temple, pausing at the east entrance of the temple, and then let's skip ahead to chapter 11, verses 22 and 23. Then the cherubim, with the wheels beside them, spread their wings, and the glory of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of the Lord went up from within the city and stopped above the mountain east of it. What is the mountain east of the temple? The Mount of Olives. So what's happening? The glory of the Lord is lifting up from the temple and he goes across and over the mountain on the other side, to the east of the city. Now what What's happening in Mark 13? They're leaving the temple. One of his disciples said to him, look, massive stones, right? Mag magnificent buildings. Is not one stone will be left on another. As Jesus was sitting, where? On the Mount of Olives. What did I say that God left the temple when Jesus left the temple? Yeah. This is, this is like what's coming true, what Ezekiel had predicted 600 years earlier is happening when Jesus left the temple. The, the glory of the Lord rises up from the temple. To, I think Mark is picking up on this, right? He's telling a story in a way that actually is using some of the language of Ezekiel. Real subtly, but talking about what, what Ezekiel had predicted 600 years earlier. Isn't that cool? Are you following me? Because Jesus is the presence of God, right? He is the glory of God. And he's on the Mount of Olives, now looking over the Kidron Valley to the temple. 
and then the whole thing about it's going to be destroyed and everything else. Okay. All right. I kept you over a few minutes. Sorry about that. Uh, thanks for hanging with me. Uh, so I never even looked at the, I apologize to those who are online. Even, uh, I don't see any questions anyway, so that's good. <laughs> Glad you didn't have any that I dismissed. But um, yeah, we'll see you next time. God bless everybody. Uh, have a wonderful week in the Lord.